Okay, if you will turn with me to Matthew 5.17. Matthew 5.17. We're going to pick up where we left off. We are in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the uh, pillars of the Gospels. Um, and a huge deal sermon. This is a big deal sermon. Um, and so we just pivoted from the salt and light paragraph. And if you're in a pew Bible, you can turn to page 810 and start where the heading says, Christ came to fulfill the law. Okay? And if you would, hold up your Bible when you get there. Okay, awesome. All right, uh, let's read together. Christ says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a, not a iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay. I want to reread, but I want to just focus on that first sentence. All right, so let's reread the first sentence. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, I have campaigned on many occasions to... Uh, read the Bible in big chunks. And I can't recall a single time I've ever preached on one verse. Uh, but we're going to do that this morning because this statement is worth slowing down for. Okay, This statement that Jesus fulfills the law is a big deal. This is a, this is a groundbreaking claim. Okay, And you have to put it in its context. This is a claim made to a people whose entire religion, whose entire practice, whose society is structured around the Scriptures, okay? And the Scriptures and the Law and the Prophets mean the same thing, okay? You can say the Scriptures and and a, and a, a second century Palestinian would hear the Law and the Prophets. You could say the Law and the Prophets and a second century Palestinian would hear the Scriptures. And what Jesus just said to this group of people whose entire lives were structured around the Scriptures was that He has come to fulfill them. Okay? And that's going to shake the way they think about everything. Okay? Their their day-to-day lives. The, The way they go to church or synagogue. Right? The the way they read the Bible, the way they interact with one another, the restrictions they have around what they can and cannot eat, everything is shaken by this statement, I came to fulfill the law. So it's groundbreaking and it's game-changing. And there are limitless applications when you spend your entire life reading the Scriptures. And that's the referent point for all of your life and all of your dialogue and all of your behavior. And... And Jesus makes this claim, all of a sudden, everything changes, 
and it's going to be applied. If you believe it, it's going to be applied in limitless ways, okay? And therefore, it's going to raise many, many questions. Now, I don't have to dive deep into my imagination to ask these questions because the church has been asking these questions for 2,000 years, all right? I'm just going to throw out a few, okay? Why would Jesus' disciples think that he came to abolish the law in the first place? Why wouldn't Jesus abolish the law? Okay? Why is the law still necessary if he came to fulfill it? Right? If Jesus has fulfilled the law, what's left to be done and taught? Okay? How should Christians do the law now that it's fulfilled? There are legions of questions about this one passage. And I'm, I'm going to claim that the answers are actually in this sentence, okay? This sentence resolves the questions that we bring to it, all right, if we study it in bits. So I want to take this sentence, I want to break it down into chunks, and we're going to deal with them one at a time, okay? First, and this seems simple, but I think it's worth commenting on, do not think, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't assume that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. He's he's correcting an assumption that they've already started making, and that assumption is that he's come to abolish the law. And the first question we need to ask is, why would they think that Jesus is coming to abolish the law? Okay? Why would the disciples just assume that he's He's going to abolish the law. Just set it aside. Why? Okay. I think the answer is actually evidenced in the book of Matthew itself. All right? Now, you, you got to remember, Matthew is one of the disciples who's hearing this from Jesus. Okay? Matthew is among this group of people who's hearing Jesus talk about how he's fulfilled the law. And Matthew himself has given us an explanation of who Jesus is. And how did he do it? He did it by pointing back to the Old Testament and said, saying, that passage, that points to Jesus. That prophecy, that points to Jesus. That whole story, that points to Jesus. Okay? Matthew, and this is just in the first four chapters of the book, Matthew claims that the history of Israel, the entire history of Israel points to Jesus. And that the story of Abraham points to Jesus. And that the story of David points to Jesus. And we're just in chapter 1. Okay? It says the promised kingdom of David points to Jesus. And the, and the promises of the prophets point to Jesus in chapters 2 and 3 and 4. Okay? And we're going to see in, a, in, a, in many more ways how Matthew says, look, all of these things, all of these scriptures, they point to Jesus. All right? Now, Matthew and the rest of Jesus' disciples are seeing this, and they're convinced that the Scriptures are pointing forward to Jesus. You tracking? So, now that Jesus is here, if the Scriptures are merely just a, like, a, like an arrow, like a, a big red neon blinking arrow where Jesus is the object, then what's the point anymore? He's here now. Right? He's here. So if, if the role of the Scriptures was just to, to give us the ammunition to be able to say, 
Okay, that, there he is. He's here now. Then, then why, why do we need them anymore? Okay, that is actually a logical question. And I, I think that this sentence is answering that question. Now that Jesus is here, what, what's the role of the scriptures? Jesus sees that tension and he's addressing it in this, in this sentence, in this passage. Okay? We're not going to get there yet, though. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, there's some language things here that I want to point out. Uh, I think in our culture, it's not normal to talk about yourself as I have come. But certainly in the ancient Middle East, it's not normal. Like, you, you don't introduce yourself by saying, I have come to do this. Right? Like that... It, it's, if it seems like a strange way to start a sermon, then you're, you're feeling the tension that these ancient Palestinians felt. You're feeling the tension of like, what do you mean you've come? Now, that tension is even, even more highlighted in the reality that this, this is not, there's no precedent in ancient literature to begin to introduce yourself and to explain why you're here by using the terms, I have come. Okay? It's not a normal way to discuss your existence. And I think what's happening here is that Jesus is, is doing what he always does. Okay? There's actually a bad teaching out there that says that Jesus himself never claimed to be divine. That is wrong. And it's not just wrong, it's way wrong. And it's not just way wrong, it's stupid. Okay? Okay? Jesus never once pretends to be ordinary. Sometimes he explicitly claims to be God. Sometimes he implicitly claims to be God. And I think that's what's going on here. He never pretends to be merely human. Matthew himself doesn't hide the nature of Jesus, and neither does Jesus. Listen, in, already in, in the book of Matthew, we have... The claim that Jesus was born of God. Like he's, this is God's son. Matthew 1.18. That Jesus is prophesied to be the, the guy who we should call God with us. Right? 123. In 3.3, it's just explicitly stated, Jesus is the Lord. Okay? You go back to that prophecy, and that's Lord in big letters. Which means Yahweh. Okay? And then again in 3.17, Jesus is God's beloved Son with whom He is well pleased. There is, there is a, a clear substructure of the book of Matthew that Jesus is not just a guy preaching well. Jesus is coming from some other place and He was sent there by God and that Jesus is Himself God. That is, that is very easily accessed in the Scriptures. I'm sorry, in Matthew. And... This claim is one of many in Matthew where Jesus explicitly and openly and clearly and directly admits that he's not just some normal guy, but that he was sent. Okay? Jesus was sent on a mission. Now you string together all of these claims about who Jesus is in Matthew with this claim that he came to fulfill and you get something. Jesus, the beloved Son of God, was sent from heaven by God to become a man on earth. Why? To fulfill the law 
and the prophets. Okay? So if Jesus was sent, and he was sent on a mission to do something, you're thinking, what did you come here to do? That's what Jesus is saying. He says, I came here to fulfill the Scriptures. Alright? That's why he was sent by God. To fulfill the Scriptures. And the key word here is fulfill. It's not a word I use every day. Um, and when we use it, we're using it in a way that's not really being represented here in the passage. Like, I feel fulfilled. Right? That's not... like Set that aside. Okay? What, is, what does this word mean, fulfill? I think the best definition that I found was to bring something to fruition in its fullest sense. To bring something to fruition in its fullest sense. Okay? There's a bunch of limitations we place on this word, and they're inappropriate. Okay? Fulfilled doesn't just mean to do. Right? And fulfilled doesn't just mean to teach. And fulfilled doesn't just mean to embody, to walk around and to be this representation of the Scriptures. And it, and it doesn't just mean to explain. Alright? It's something more. I'm going to read a sentence to you a couple times because I think this kind of captures what Jesus means by saying He fulfills the Scriptures. Jesus not only perfectly executed the law, His perfect execution was a demonstration of the law's fullest sense, its most complete meaning. And His teaching is a representation of that fullest sense. Now, that's a comp- we're going to tease this out. If that's, if that's a, a little heavy of a sentence, that's fine. Stick it in your pocket, but let me read it to you one more time. Jesus didn't only per- perfectly execute the law, His perfect execution of the law was a demonstration of the law's fullest sense, its most complete meaning. And His teaching is a representation of that fullest sense. Alright, let's, let's try and get deeper in here. The question we need to answer this morning is how did Jesus fulfill the Scriptures? Okay, how, how did Jesus fulfill the Scriptures? And before we can answer that question, we need a better understanding of the Scriptures. We can't really tackle how Jesus fulfilled the Scriptures unless we have a broad framework that, that the Scriptures fit within. Okay? So that's what I'm, tr- I'm going to try and do right now. Every book of the Law and the Prophets, every book of the Old Testament shares three major characteristics. Now, this is not coming from me. Actually, Brett referenced the book that's brilliant, uh, by a guy named Jim Hamilton. It's called uh, The Glory of God and Salvation Through Judgment. Okay? The Glory of God. And that sounds like a, that sounds like a lot. But it's not a lot. You should read it. It's really very, very good. Um, the Glory of God in Salvation Through Judgment. This is kind of extracting a, a major principle in this text. But I, I believe, and many other believe, that every book of the law and the prophets shares three major characteristic, characteristics. And I'm going to Simplify them by calling them the call, the curse, and the comfort. Okay? The DNA of the Old Testament. The call, the curse, and the comfort. Every book in the Old Testament sort of 
lives within this framework of a call to righteousness, the curse for disobedience, and the comfort of God's mercy. Okay? The call to righteousness, the curse for disobedience, and the comfort of God's mercy. Now, this is evidenced on the grand scale. All right? You can look at You can look at the Old Testament as a whole. You can look at the law as a whole and you can see this evidence. Here's what I mean. God's covenant with Israel, okay? The law issues a call to holiness, okay? A call to holiness. And that's evidenced in a a call to love God and a call to refrain from wickedness, okay? And then the law, in tandem, warns of a curse for wickedness, okay? Blessing and cursing. You follow me, you'll be blessed. But you pursue the wickedness of the nations, you'll be cursed. Okay? And the comfort to those who are hearing this and who know that they are wicked and who know that they're going to fail is that there's a way made. The comfort of sacrifice. Okay? There's a comfort of sacrifice. You will sin when you're trying to do the law, when you're trying to be holy as God has called you to holy, holiness, you will sin. And when you sin, there's a sacrifice for you. Okay? There's a sacrifice made on your behalf. An innocent lamb will, will, will be slaughtered on your behalf so you can stand before God without fear. Okay? That's, that's evidence in the law. That's, that's a big, major aspect of the, of the scriptures, but it's also evidenced on the small scale. Okay, I'm just going to pick three examples. Very, probably the most uh, well-known story in the Old Testament is of Adam, right? Uh, Adam was asked to steward God's possessions, right? And he was given a, a call, a restriction, like, hey, hey, you may eat of all of the trees of this garden, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Okay? It's a very simple call. Not doesn't seem to be terribly complex. But don't judge, because as soon as you start judging, you're going to see simple calls in your life, and you're just like, you know. Anyways. <laughs> so he receives this call to righteously steward God's stuff, right? And then he falls into wickedness, and he is cursed. Okay? He and Eve and the grounds... The snake are cursed due to his wickedness. But on the heels of the curse, there is the comfort of God's mercy. Right? The seed that will crush the serpent's head. There's a comfort of God's mercy right there. Sewn into the very first story is the seed of the promise of, of, of mercy for those who have broken the rules. All right, let's look at Jonah's mission. I, I, I read these, but we don't have time. Jonah's mission. Right? He says, go, go to Nineveh and tell them that their wickedness is before me and they need to repent. Okay? Because if they don't, I'm going to destroy the city. Right? The call and the curse. All right? And what happens? You remember? First of all, he doesn't want them to repent, so he jets town. And God's like, oh, you're going to get there one way or the other. <laughs> you can go in the belly of a ship or the belly of a whale, but we're going to be on the shores of Nineveh at some point. Um, so Jonah, uh, 
I can't remember where I saw this entirely beside the point, but uh, I saw this like artist rendering of what Jonah must have looked like after being in, in stomach acid for three days. It's like horrifying. He's got like patches everywhere. His hair is falling out. He's just like stumbling into Nineveh to like declare the... Anyways, but he, he threatens the curse, right? Jonah goes to Nineveh and he, and he, and he says, look, here's your call. And if, if you don't meet that call, here's your curse. And, and what do they do? They repent. And they, they wear sackcloth and ashes in hopes of mercy. And what is issued? Mercy. Right? Comfort of mercy. Right? Same kind of dynamic. The call, the curse, and the comfort of mercy. Alright. And we just saw this in Joel's prophecy. Not terribly dissimilar to Nineveh's situation. There's this implied, look, like I've been calling you to righteousness for centuries, right? And you have, you have chased after the idolatry of the nations. You have become wicked. So there's this army of locusts coming, right? This curse is coming on you, but it's planted as a seed all throughout Joel that comes to fruition in the last chapters is this mercy, the comfort of mercy in God's rescue and redemption of His people who turn to Him. Okay, so this this dynamic, this call and this com- curse and this comfort is all throughout the Old Testament. Now, in our circles, we talk a lot about how Jesus fulfills the Scriptures. We talk about it all the time. Okay? And in almost every case, we mean that Jesus bears the curse on our behalf and that Jesus offers the comfort of mercy to those who believe. Right? Right? He bears the curse, and He offers the comfort. Okay, We have no trouble believing, embracing, and rejoicing over the work of Jesus because on a superlative level, Jesus fulfills the curse. He bears the curse on our behalf way more than a sacrificial lamb could. We know that because we just went through Hebrews. And he also offers the comforts on a superlative level, right? It's not just merely the blessings of the kingdom and the covenant. It's way more than that. Way more. But what we don't often dwell on, and what I think the Sermon on the Mount is focusing on, is that Jesus fulfills the call of the law. Okay, Jesus fulfills the call of the law. I want to show you from the Sermon on the Mount how Jesus fulfills the call to righteousness that is embodied in the Scriptures. All right, Let's read a few passages. We're going to deal with these later on in the year. But we'll skip ahead for a moment. You have heard that it was said of those of old, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Alright? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So what's going on here? I think what's going on here is that the call of Christ, this superlative embodiment of all of the righteous call of the law, the call of Christ brings the law's call to fruition in its fullest sense, right? Think of a tree that bears fruit, right? Nothing has changed to the nature of that tree, but that tree bears fruit, and all of a sudden the fruit seems to be even better than what you had before, okay? This, the, the, the call of Christ brings the call to fruition in its fullest sense, right? Jesus says, don't murder, but he says, don't even do the thing that starts the path to murder, right? He says, don't commit adultery. He says, you don't even, you don't even take a step in adultery's direction, right? So the, the call of the law is brought to fruition in its fullest sense. It's another way to say that. The call of Christ represents the fulfillment of the call of the Scriptures. So here's what I'm suggesting Jesus means here in this paragraph. I think He means in the same way that He bears the curse of the law in its fullest sense on the cross, and in the same way that Jesus offers the comfort of mercy in the fullest sense through redemption, Jesus issues a call to His people that fulfills the call of the Scriptures in its fullest sense. Alright, I'm going to repeat that. In the same way that Jesus bears the curse of the law in its fullest sense on the cross, and in the same way that Jesus offers the comfort of mercy in its fullest sense through redemption, Jesus issues a call to His people that fulfills the call of the Scriptures in its fullest sense. And that's the answer to why we don't toss out the Scriptures. Right? We don't toss out the Scriptures because they don't merely point to Jesus, but because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. We actually understand what the Scriptures means by way of Jesus. Does that make sense? It's by His teaching that we can understand the Scriptures And that makes sense of the next sentence, right? That's why those who relax the law will be called least in the kingdom. Because to relax the law is to ignore Jesus' call. You're calling yourself a Christ follower and you're ignoring everything He says when He says, follow me. Are you even following Jesus? If you throw out the Scriptures? No. No. To relax the law is to ignore Jesus' call, which is the doing of the law in its fullest sense. Does that make sense? And also, that's why those who do and teach the law will be called great in the kingdom, because those who do the law are heeding Christ's call. They are faithfully following Jesus. They're literally following Christ, and they're teaching others to do the same. To do the law in the way that Jesus is referring to, which we're going to talk about probably for the next six months, to do the law is to follow Jesus. 
Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Does it make sense? Okay. Application. Implications. I'm going to... I'm tempted to apologize because this is going to feel harsh, but I, I don't think it is. If you feel Christ's comfort, okay? If you feel Christ's comfort, but don't feel Christ's call, you don't understand the gospel. Okay? If you feel Christ's comfort, if you're rejoicing in the, in the curse-bearing work of Jesus, and you're rejoicing in the promised inheritance, but you're not rejoicing, and you're not driving yourself, and you're not pleading with the Lord for more strength to accomplish His call, then you don't understand the Gospel yet. Not, not all of it. Okay? You're viewing Jesus as the fulfillment of only a part of the Scriptures. And He fulfilled the all of it. Okay? Let me give this to you in another way. Christians should feel a call to holiness in its fullest sense. Okay? Not one dot of the law is relaxed in Christ. Okay? We just read that. Not one dot of the law is relaxed in Christ. So if you become in Christ, you should not be going, Woo! Well, that was tough. It's time to take a break. No. No. You should feel the superlative call to holiness. Okay? The holiness to which you were called is the fulfillment of the holiness to which the people of Israel were called. And you need to go back and read the call to the people of Israel because they're called to love God with all of their heart and all of their, their soul and all of their strength and all of their mind. They are called to love God with everything. And that has its superlative embodiment in Christ's call. Okay? You should feel the call to holiness in even a bigger sense than maybe you did before. However, you should feel that call in concert with the comfort of redemption in its fullest sense. Okay? That's why the work of Christ is so beautiful. Because yes, you are called to holiness to a superlative sense, but you're also given the curse-bearing work of Christ. And you can also take comfort in Christ's promise of redemption and salvation and a kingdom to the superlative sense. So it's not just that you're working harder than everyone else, and you should be working harder than everyone else. But it's when you stumble and you're tempted to despair. No one's born the curse like Jesus. Nothing can bear the curse like Jesus there's no wrath for you. When you're tempted to despair because you falter in your call to holiness, you remember the comfort that Christ has given. 
And there's no promise like that. The world has nothing on the promises of Jesus. I'm in advertising. It's interesting to uh, uh, do forensic, retroactive, like try and interpret the marketing that, that I receive and to see how it's just like a tiny, like, like ridiculous claim that somehow this thing, this product, this service, this whatever can give you peace or love or joy. All of your, all of your desires will be fulfilled or whatever. And it's just like a, it's a ridiculous, it's, it's a ridiculous claim against the claim of Jesus, the comfort of Jesus. Okay. All right. Lastly, do you feel the call to holiness? Maybe that's you. Maybe you feel the call to holiness. Maybe you can't stop thinking about what Christ has called you to, but you're crippled by sin. You can't get up in the morning without remembering the degree to which you are wretched because of your sin. You can't get over your sin. Remember that Jesus bore the curse on your behalf. And remember the comfort that Jesus offers to those who trust Him. But also remember that Jesus empowers His people to follow the call. The call of Jesus is interesting because it's impossible and yet, right? It's impossible and yet He has given you everything you need for life and godliness. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness. This passage isn't particularly a passage about the Holy Spirit. But let's take a moment and remember that if you're in Christ, you have God dwelling in you. Right? The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. So don't be tempted to believe that you cannot overcome your sin because there's no curse for you and because you walk in the comfort of redemption and because you've been given everything you need for life and godliness. Amen? Now, let's take a moment to celebrate that gift of everything we need for life and godliness at the table. Okay? Let's pray.